welcome back to the Weekly Driver Podcast. My name is James Rea. I write an automotive column for Bay Area News Group, which is the San Jose Mercury and the East Bay Times in Walnut Creek. And I am the founder and now senior editor of theweeklydriver.com. In, uh, the site's been up since 2004. My longtime friend and co-host is Bruce Aldrich. And uh, we've been doing the podcast now for six years, six plus years. And uh, we have a special guest today, um, recent consumer electronics show in Las Vegas. There was an event called Unveiled, and you walked into Unveiled, and in the middle of the room was this wonderful new super craft, super spaceship, super whirlybird, super ultralight. But the CEO is Ken Carklin, and Ken, welcome to the show. We met each other briefly at CES. So welcome to our podcast. Uh, thanks for being available today, and we're all ears to hear about um, your your project. So could you tell us what you have going on and a little bit of the background of it? You bet, James. Thank you, thank you so much for uh, for having me today. Sure. Uh, really excited to share a little bit more. What you saw at the unveiling right before CES uh, was the Helix. Yes. And the Helix is our production version of a tilt aircraft electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicle that has been in development over a decade. So the company, you know, takes its roots all the way back to uh, Ontario around uh, 2014, 2015 rather, uh, when our, our founder, fellow by the name of Marcus Lang, uh, you know, became the very first person to personally fly an electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. And he, he built it and tested it on, on his farm in Ontario. And uh, his wife and his neighbors looked on as, as he hopped around on the lawn. Well, that was the kind of the very beginning. And he built up the company. He got some uh, attention from a, a key investor and ultimately moved the company to the Bay Area. And they continued the development quietly, patiently, uh, making little strides with uh, larger aircraft and also subscale aircraft and getting to an electric vertical takeoff and landing architecture that was remarkably simple and um, inherently high reliability and full of you know redundancy uh, to make it just as safe as possible. And uh, that journey continued uh, for a number of years and a number of significant revisions of, of the vehicle. It, uh, it got a little bit bigger and it got a little more aerodynamic. And next thing you know, by 2018, uh, they did their first human piloted flights. But most of the work uh, up until about last year was all done remotely piloted. And that was because it could make rapid uh, advances in the design and in the uh, prototypes with, uh, without ever putting a human pilot in any sort of risk. Now, 6,500 test flights later, and uh, really this is the, the third or fourth, rather the fourth version of, of the aircraft, uh, we have the Helix. And this is what we want to go to market with. And what we believe is going to change how people move. Ken, I think you got something there. Um, <laughs> yes. I, I was little, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't get to see it at CES. And uh, I've been looking at the videos. They're all over YouTube. 
And <laughs> it's exciting. I, I think it would be a blast to fly, I'm guessing. And uh, I just, you, you got the design right as far as looks, too. It looks, it's moving fast when it's sitting on the ground. So congratulations. Just you got the look right, and it looks like a ball of fun. Well, th- thank you so much. And, you know, a, a, a lot of sweat and toil of a pretty significant team has gone into that over many, many years. Many aircraft built, we've built and flown 25 aircraft. We have over 20 qualified operators now that have gone through some level of training and, and actually flown the aircraft on their own. Uh, so we're in a different place. And it's, uh, it, to your point, it is an absolute joy to fly. Oh, um, I've, I've, I've now done it my, myself uh, 15 times. And I'm looking forward to uh, the next time. And hopefully I'll be doing that in Southern California nice uh, change of scenery we'll see um but it is an absolute joy to fly you feel connected to the vehicle and the closest thing that uh i've experienced to it is actually uh, uh on, a, on a parachute you know hanging 500 feet above a of a, the drop zone and, and the view is similar the feeling is similar but you just move the joystick and and you're in complete command of where you're going in 3d space and it's 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 hard to explain. Ken, uh, as we said earlier, I just met you and Heidi uh, briefly right when the whole you know, week-long um, CES was, well, as they said, being unveiled. And it was a, just a brief hello, how are you? But thinking through, through that, during the week, you must have talked to, I don't know, let's just say thousands of people. And I'm wondering if you, in a certain way, could condense or give us an example of what some of the reaction was from, like we've said, it was pretty impressive to people who might have been skeptical. Um, what kind of reaction did you get when you were there? Well, I mean, I think it's been the the, uh, the full range yep. of uh, reactions from the, the skeptical that, uh, well, this isn't practical kind of response to, um, I, I not only do I want one, I want, uh, I want four of them on our <laughs> ranch. It yes. has so many different uses. When can I get them? And everything in between. And, and to be very honest, there, there should be, you know, a certain amount of, of kind of new technology hesitancy uh, among sure. anyone who wants to acquire something like this. It's, uh, my goodness, it's a, it's a flying vehicle. It is a, a, a novel aero architecture, but it's all built on sound principles of redundant hardware where you have some fault tolerance. And it is a winged, uh, powered winged vehicle. So you're actually flying with the benefit of uh, wings and, and the lift that they deliver when you're in cruise flight. And that makes a big difference, too. Uh, the other really significant aspect is, you know, the simplicity. There's been a lot of development in the eVTOL space and, uh, and literally dozens and dozens of different vehicles in development out there. Overwhelmingly, you know, that... The industry is, is chasing after a air taxi type application. That's, that's not who we are. We're really very focused on the individual owner operator and their experience. And we're using the category called uh, part 103 ultralights to go to market initially. And what that allows is for a, a individual doesn't actually have to have a pilot certificate 
to fly a vehicle that meets certain weight and speed and other requirements in uncongested airspace, that's typically G airspace, so you can fly in other class of airspace with permission from air traffic control. During the day, no precipitation, favorable conditions, and um, it's it's going to allow us to access, I think, what I think is a, a whole pocket of people who are very passionate about aviation, but for whatever reason, they didn't have their opportunity to become a pilot, or maybe they were a pilot, and uh, they just are no longer current. There's a lot of folks who meet that uh, description, and they're very excited about the, uh, the, the Helix. You mentioned the founder of the company and it's the company's genesis. Uh, what is your background uh, being involved with the company? And what, what areas did you come from and, and what, er- what expertise did you bring to the table? Yeah, so I, I've, uh, I, I've been with the company since May of uh, uh, 22. And I joined after about 27 years in tech all in. Uh, it started back in the mid-90s at uh, a little company down the road from where I'm sitting right now called Intel Corporation. It's been about a, uh, about a, half, about a dozen years in the semiconductor industry and uh, also participated in a venture-funded startup in Southern California. And then I found my way to a company called AeroVironment. And AeroVironment is a 50-year-old publicly traded company with uh, just an amazing history of technological firsts, whether it's the first human-powered aircraft to cross the English Channel back in the 1980s, the first solar-powered car to traverse uh, the Australian continent, or the, uh, well, the first helicopter to fly on another planet, for that matter. Um, AeroVironment had a significant role in, in that as well, working with JPL. Um, it's, it's a really fascinating company. I was there 11 years. I did everything there from, you know, engineering management, to manufacturing, to operations, to sales as a GM. And uh, time that I left, I had been the COO uh, for uh, the prior two years. Gotcha. And uh, they are the world leader in uh, small unmanned aircraft systems. So think uh, DOD uh, type applications. So sales to DOD in 45 allied countries. But they also make very large aircraft. Um, mostly, overwhelmingly, we're talking unmanned systems. So that is one major difference in what we're doing here at Pivotal. This is obviously a manned aircraft, and we hope future, future versions of it will be highly autonomous, uh, optionally manned, um, and any number of other applications you could think of. Well, it's a very interesting vehicle. I, uh, I used to dream of flying over the neighborhood back in my early teens, and then I never got to realize anything until, I don't know, early 20s, I got into hang gliding a bit, and so that Uh kind of mirrored my dreams, and then most recently, about five years um, back now, I've been flying drones regularly. Of course, I'm not in them, (laughs) but I also get that same sense of what I've always what I've always known in my dreams, you know, if you will, this vehicle is going <laughs> to, this would be great because now you're in the vehicle. You're in the drone, right? Oh, yeah. Well, you, you certainly get a certain sense of adventure and exploration when you're flying a, a remotely piloted system uh, out and about and, and, you know, looking right. at the video. And, right. Uh, but it's, uh, it's a whole other level uh, when you're, you're sitting at the stick. And you're flying, you know, uh, two to five hundred feet above the ground at 
60 miles an hour and, and just taking it all in. Fantastic. You, yes. You mentioned earlier about some of the, maybe for lack of a better term, user groups. And um, Bruce and I were talking uh, over coffee about, you know, if somebody had a hundred acre ranch or a thousand acre ranch or whatever it might be, how practical would this, would the Helix be for someone who maybe 30 years ago might be on a horse <laughs> to, looking at his ranch and now they can go in one of these uh uh, new f- f- flying vehicles is that a, a user group that's been um kind of at the top of your list and and what are there others that you think would be purchases of this um for practicality well first and foremost it, it is an an ultralight vehicle and ultralight vehicles uh under that section of the, the federal federal aviation regulations are to be used principally for uh recreation I see. So we are looking at a, at a recreational uh, audience primarily, so recreation and short-hop travel. You know, another uh, operation or concept of operations that's really popped up is there's a lot of would-be short-range commuters out there as well that live in uncongested areas. Uh, we're, we're talking to one lives out in, in Merced. He owns a manufacturing interest across town. It's about uh, uh, an 18-mile drive for him and a lot of red lights. But if he flies point to point from his ranch to his business, it's uh, something closer to 12 miles, and uh, he doesn't stop for any red lights then. So he's evaluating the possibility of acquiring the Helix, installing charging infrastructure on both sides of his commute, and doing a daily commute. That's a good. That's, that's great. Exciting. Is there a side by side in the future, or a, some kind of a tandem setup? For, for a passenger? Well, what it will take for us to get to a two-seater is uh, the FAA maturing their currently proposed uh, certification plan for uh, uh, light sport and other aircraft that, that happen to be powered lift aircraft. We would love to certify this aircraft or and, and or a future version of it, uh, and sooner the better. I think it would do a lot for market acceptance, but the fact of the matter is there is no part under the FAA's current rules to get that certification. You know, light sport aircraft, it's a design standard. And, and as soon as you get to the part where it says, you know, your, your uh, single internal combustion engine shall be uh, a reciprocating engine. Well, that, that's kind of where it ends. This is all electric, distributed electric propulsion, uh, failover redundant systems, and, and the standards just don't comprehend it. But the good news is they've proposed something that's been nicknamed Mosaic, which is not a design standard. It's a performance standard. So if you meet uh, performance aspects like reliability and um, uh, stall speed and, and some, a number of other aspects, uh, reserve power, for example, then you'll be able to get your aircraft certified almost no matter what it looks like. It, it's not evaluating, did you design it to look like other aircraft? It's evaluating how functional is it, considered a functional standard. And uh, we hope that goes into effect in the coming couple of years. And then at that point, we'll be hard at work on the next aircraft. What uh, What's in the future for you guys? Did I read on the website that you're thinking of some kind of a direct feedback loop so you can start getting knowledge uh more feedback on, uh, you know, I don't know, prop life and motor life and all that type of criteria? Oh, yeah. Well, so it's uh, the, uh, there's been a ton of feedback already. So every single aircraft we build is cloud-connected. 
And at the conclusion of the flight, and usually while it's being charged, all that telemetry, uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of data points for the telemetry uh, gets pushed up to the cloud. And we have uh, uh, programs that, that run uh, analyses on all that data, and we're able to spot uh, potential failures. We're able to spot uh, things that uh, might be showing a little bit of wear, whether it's a servo that's consuming a little bit too much current or a motor that's running a little bit hotter than all the others. And uh, that gives us the opportunity to get out in front of, of potential maintenance issues long before they ever become an issue. Uh, it also informs us of things like operator behavior. Is the operator, you know, accidentally putting in inputs that, that, that wouldn't make sense to be putting in? Um, are they flying in a safe manner? So there's a lot that comes out of that data. In fact, we're really just scratching the surface of how we're going to use it for uh, customers, because, of course, that's going to be a little bit different than we're just using it for our test vehicles. And there's privacy concerns that we have to make sure that we're on top of. But that being said, we want to get to where we've got the uh, a sizable install base of EVTOL aircraft that we're learning from every single day. That's interesting. Uh, Ken, I, I'm old enough to remember, and I think I briefly mentioned it uh, to you and to Heidi when I was there at CES. Um, 30 years ago, I had a journalistic friend who was a television guy who went into um, print journalism. And I think he wrote probably 30 stories on the Moeller flying vehicle that was out of Davis. And I don't think it ever came to fruition. So now mm -hmm. moving mm -hmm. fast forward, I, I, I think I've read through the years that there have been and you would know it in great detail, um, how many of these companies have tried, and I think I would guess that a majority have failed, why do you think that um, your your product, which is now available, um, has succeeded? And that's that's part A. Part B is our Doberman Pinscher co-host in the, in the backyard. <laughs> no, actually, actually part, part, B, part B is is a reference to this, is that... Um, if I take off my enthusiast hat and put on my skeptic's hat, um, I've told several friends about our interview today, and they said, oh, I hope it never happens because I don't want one of those things hovering over my backyard. So help me with the, the skeptic um, reactions that I've had with, uh, with several friends. Number one, why has it succeeded? Number two, what about skeptics? Well, yeah, let's, let's – uh talk about the, the success. I think it's, it's still early on and, and yes. you know, we would be, uh, uh, it'd be inappropriate for us to say this is wildly successful. It's certainly successful technologically. Yes. Uh, as a vehicle, you know, you can hop in and after about uh, a week or a week and a half of training and, you know, be able to really master and be proficient and uh, fly from point A to point B. And the fact that it's electric gives it a really small maintenance and logistical footprint. You're not dealing with fuel. You're not dealing with engines that would be rebuilt. It's just electric motors yes. and batteries. And uh, that, that's a huge piece of why I think it's going to be successful is, the, you know, the overall simplicity. Yes. Uh, and the software that makes it easy to fly uh, with great control. You know, you spoke to, uh, uh, there's been a number of attempts at what I would call flying cars over the years, and they go back many decades. Back, I think, almost in the 40s, not the 30s, very first yes. one. And invariably, 
My observation is that when a design team or an inventor have put all the requirements of a relatively small aircraft and a road vehicle and mash them up to drive the design, the outcome is not very favorable to either. Uh, you wind up with a really marginal car or, or a really marginal aircraft or, frankly, in all the uh, versions that I've ever seen, both are quite marginal, frankly. It's, it's a tough set of, of design constraints. They're very competing um, priorities. You know, an aircraft, you want to make it as absolutely light as possible. Well, that you want to make it lighter if it's a, a road vehicle too, but only to a point. Then you need you think about you know, things like crash protection and uh, 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 how much fuel you can carry and so forth. By being in the ultralight category, that kept us incredibly focused on making this a light, agile aircraft, and that's exactly what it is. So, I think it's it's going to succeed quite and do quite well as as an air vehicle. The other thing we certainly have going for us is it's quiet. Yes, it's just not that loud. You know, you once you get off the ground, you transition to cruise, and you're two to three hundred feet off the ground. I'd be surprised if your neighbor even heard you fly by. Thank you. Good answer. Because it's about as loud as a Tesla driving Tesla Model S at the same distance driving on the road. It's really quiet when it's in cruise and it's up at altitude. Now. When you're hovering and you're landing and you're taking off, there's a little bit more of a buzz for sure. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at a distance of 100 feet, you and I could maintain a conversation uh, without, uh, you know, putting on headphones. And it's, it's, it's a lot quieter in my observation than a lot of the two-stroke leaf blowers you hear going on all over. So, yes. And we haven't even done much to optimize the acoustics. There's still things we can do there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing I'd, I'd tell your, your skeptic friend is that you know, don't worry about it. These should not be the helix. That is, should not be operated. You know, over his backyard. Uh, they're supposed to be operated in uncongested airspace over uncongested areas. It means you're not flying over cities, settlements, towns, groups of people, and uh, you're, you're keeping it over the open open land for the most part. Thank you for that. That's what I wanted to hear. Appreciate it. Yeah, Ken, tell us about the uh, trailer ability. I guess uh, one of the the beauties of it is small. It's lightweight. Uh, but it can be uh, d- disassembled to some uh, extent and put in a trailer so you could take it to Uncle Joe's uh, ranch or whatever to fly it, right? Oh, yeah. Or, or, or to some other, you know, flight location with great views or, you know, out to the coast or, or what have you. So the aircraft uh, can be taken apart. That is the two wings, the two tandem wings, top, back and front. Uh, come off, those go into what we call a wing cart, and then there's a separate vehicle cart, and both slide neatly into a 16-foot trailer side-by-side and can be put back together again in 30 minutes uh, by you and a friend, and then you're ready to take to the sky. So it, it really does lend itself to uh, uh, road tripping to you know beautiful places to fly and uh, making an event out of it. So uh, it, is, it is quite portable now. Yeah, sense. that is good. Can you tell us a little bit? You mentioned a week and a half or something like that of training. What is it? An is it a, a set time? Um, I guess you have three D goggles. There, you have simulators and stuff to help certify somebody to fly. What does that all entail? So it's of course you know we're, we're learning and evolving all the time. 
And we actually kicked off a what we called early access program. And the very first customer uh, graduated from that and took delivery of his Blackfly, which is the predecessor to the Helix, uh, back in June of last year. And we've had several more uh, early access uh, program customers come through the whole program. And, and that program is really all about making us a better company when it comes to delivering and supporting customers and training customers. So what we found so far is that if they're going to emerge with the kind of competency that, that we really want them to have so we can have confidence that they're going to be safe, that they understand some airman basics, that they understand how to read meteorological reports and notice to airmen and a lot of things that would be covered when you're getting a light sport pilot's license. But, and we also want them to be very proficient with the vehicle itself. You know, they will be proficient in what to do if there's any number of different hardware failures. If you have a radar failure and you're normally uh, doing you know, an autonomous landing, uh, well, what about when that autonomy goes away? What if you don't have GPS? Uh, what if you lose one joystick and you have to fly with your non-dominant hand? All of our pilots, get trained to be very proficient with all of those kinds of things going on. And uh, there, will, there will also be an ongoing computer-based training uh, 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 currency requirement, although that hasn't been finalized yet. And, uh, you know, if you look at the Pareto of things that go wrong in light sport and ultralight uh, aircraft, uh, number one is operator proficiency. Number two is, is judgment. And somewhere down four or five is like weather. So making sure that your pilots have the right skills is just so important. That's why it's taking us right now 10 days. 10 days begin to end. A lot of simulator work on the front end. And the simulator actually pitches exactly like the aircraft. So that motion gets incredibly normalized. Uh, that simulator is flying with the same flight control hardware and software that we have in the aircraft. And it's being replicated in the X-plane environment. And we do use uh, the virtual reality uh, goggles. We used to use the Oculus. Now we're using something a little higher end uh, that uh, really reproduces that 3D experience in the cockpit and, you know, seeing the world from up in the air. And uh, we're also able to make the airplane do all kinds of different things with, uh, in that simulation environment. So that's your primary mode of training. And then when you're really proficient, you go up for your first flight. And it's a short one because every flight's a solo. Sure. So yeah. You have to have really high confidence before we put you in the chair. I think just the uh, flight training would be fun. Yes. Um, Ken, I'll follow up with two things. I think one, uh, I hadn't seen it yet, but Bruce informed me that you can see the price of the vehicle um, on the website. So that's, could you share that with us, number one? And number two, I don't know whether it was directly or indirectly, was the show the CES that it did it lead and can you say did it lead to people buying one uh yeah so the the vehicle uh starts at a hundred and ninety thousand dollars that's kind of the base configuration with the minimum trim level and the basic warranty and then if you're looking for a little bit more you want a uh, a slightly more uh, uh decked out uh, flight deck or uh, aviation radios, beacon lights, uh, emergency locator, transmitter, uh, a custom exterior to the vehicle, uh, then you could be paying uh, uh, quite a bit more. Uh, I think it goes all the way up to 260, but uh, 
I'm not looking at the price sheet like you are. So, yeah, gotcha. <laughs> um, yeah. and you know, it's, it's just a, it's a slightly different, uh, level of, of, uh, look and feel, uh, sure. and fit and finish in, in the upper, in the upper limit. But, uh, you can get into this at the basic level for 190,000. Does the base model give you that, uh, uh, parachute backup or is that an optional oh absolutely yeah that's 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 not an option that that uh full aircraft ballistic parachute system is on every vehicle we've built and flown and that's not going to change man that is a good safety device yeah that is uh how about <clears throat> how about the second part of that did you have a, a good um pretty good excitement at the show and did you have anybody that uh signed on the dotted line if you will Oh my gosh, yes. And uh, uh, yes, we have a backlog uh, coming out of last week that, um, well, I won't go to the specifics, but it exceeded our expectations. That's great, great to hear. Yeah. Hey, Ken, it's been a um, rather quick uh, 30 plus minutes, but you want to thank um, our guest today. Uh, it just sounds like, you know, they say they, the future is now. We The future is now. So Ken, thanks a bunch for, for being our guest on the Weekly Driver Podcast. Um, we encourage people to go visit the website, www. I'm not sure what it is. I, <laughs> what is it? Ken, yeah. fill me in again, if you would, it's www. Just, it's just, just pivotal.aero. That's right. P-I-V-O-T-A-L dot A-E-R-O. I lost that. Arrow. I'm sorry about that in my in my no aging brain. So um, thanks <laughs> thanks again, uh, Ken, for, for educating us today on our podcast we encourage people to visit um, my site, www, the Weekly Driver, where all our park podcasts are archived. And if you choose to um, comment on today's show, and thanks again, Ken, for uh, for being available. So fascinating project, and the vehicle just looks spectacular. So thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Okay. Take care. Bye now. Come out and see us. Yes. Bye.